18, which we are studying on Sunday morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave, get their attention, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses, I'll read if you read along in your heart. Now, when they, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, had passed through uh, the uh, Amphipolis and then also um, the city of, I'm working on this, Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica, got that one down, uh, where, they, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Jews, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring out Paul and Silas, who were apparently boarding there, to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the whole world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security that is the magistrates, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these nine verses. We know they're not in your Bible by any accident, and we know that they teach us something that is very important to you and you know is very important to us. And our understanding of you, your purposes, Lord, and we pray that you'd freshly fill us with your spirit right now. Give us a supernatural ability to hear your voice and to receive this as a message from your throne this morning as we study it together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they travel from Philippi through uh, Amphipolis and also Apollonia to the city of Thessalonica, as we're told in verse 1. It was a hundred-mile uh, journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. The population of Thessalonica at that time was about uh, 200,000. I don't know what the population of it uh, is today. I was once in Thessalonica. We looked at the ruins of of some parts of the ancient city a number uh, of years ago. But it was a very significant city in Paul's day, and it was a, uh, a commercial center and very prosperous as a result in that day. It was the capital of the province of, uh, province of Macedonia. There is no mention of Paul in terms of ministry in uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia in, because it appears that Paul is now following another pattern that marked his ministry uh, at, at this point. And this pattern that he followed is that he would tend to go to major cities, to large cities, capital cities, power centers within the Roman Empire, preach the gospel there, endeavor to establish a missions-minded church, and then that that, uh, that church would then reach the smaller cities that surrounded the major cities. This was a characteristic of, of Paul's ministry, and everyone ought to know in a study of the book of Acts that this is precisely what he did. Now, unlike Philippi, which did not have a Jewish synagogue, Thessalonica did have a synagogue, and he made a beeline for it. Thessalonica had a very, very large Jewish population. 
in that day. And Paul followed another custom of his, and that was to go into that, into that synagogue on their Sabbath days, and then we're told in verse 2 uh, that he did so and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures for three consecutive Sabbaths or Saturdays. We get a little bit of insight. He's only there for a very short period of time, and yet a wonderful church is established. This is the power of the Holy Spirit to say amen to the gospel, for Paul to leave Christians who are just three weeks old uh, in the Lord when he departs from the city, and yet for a great church to be established within it. God begins a good work within us that he promises to bring to completion, and so he does with us individually and with the churches that he establishes. We know from his letters uh, that he would later write to the church at Thessalonica that he spent his time during those three weeks working all week. He was a tent maker. That's how he put food on the table for himself and Silas and for Timothy. And so through the week, he worked very hard in that way. And then on the Sabbath, he then went to the synagogue and, and uh, proceeded to minister the Scriptures to them. We get a glimpse of that in Second Thessalonians 3, where Paul said, "'For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you.'" So Paul goes there he preaches the gospel to uh, the, uh, those that are within this synagogue. And in verse 4, we have the response to the message. Some of the Jews within the synagogue, they put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior as a result of Paul's ministry. The greatest impact, we're told in verse 4, of the gospel and Paul's ministry in that synagogue had to do with a group known as the God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who were sick of the, polyth uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, polytheism of the Roman Empire, uh, so many gods to keep track of, so many gods to appease. Most all of them led you into lewd behavior or superstitious kind of behavior. And so they would come to some point in their life, they'd look at it and say, these gods aren't leading me anywhere. They're leading in me into a life of depravity. I don't want anything to do with that. And so they would continue their search for God, whereupon they would come upon the Jews. And the Jews had a tremendous advantage in that they only had one God. And, uh, and this was appealing to the pagans. And here they've got one God, and the interesting thing about this God is that this God was holy. This God was pure, unlike most of the Roman and Greek deities. And not only was this God holy and pure, but he pretended to, in the lives of those who followed him, to make them holy and pure as well. Well, it was very attractive for anyone that hadn't seared their conscience yet, for a moral person, for a thinking person, so they would then join in the services at the, the Jewish synagogues on the Saturdays. But the difference between a God-fear, which is who these people were, and a convert is a convert to Judaism, if he was male, he would also be circumcised and then uh, religiously uh, keep the Ten Commandments, including the uh, honoring of the Sabbath day. God fears, said, we like God, we like to study the Old Testament, we like what you're about, we like what we learn about your God, but we're not going to be circumcised and we're not going to feel that we're under the constraint to, you know, keep the Sabbath the way that you uh, keep the Sabbath. A great multitude, we're told, of these men then put their faith in Jesus for salvation, and then we're told additionally that not a few, and the language means quite a few, uh, Gentile women, leading Gentile women within the city, trusted in Jesus as well. They were probably very much like Lydia in Philippi, um, very educated, 
uh, very uh, um, uh, wealthy, part of the upper class, uh, very industrious and successful and influential as a result within the city. They trusted in Christ. Jesus is the Christ as well. Well, all of this didn't sit well upon the hearts of many of the Jews that were within that synagogue and certainly upon uh, the leadership. And they chose not to trust in uh, Jesus as the Messiah because they became envious over the impact that this gospel had had upon their little congregation or large congregation at the synagogue. So this man has come in, he's preached the gospel, and it's created a divide within that synagogue, so many people now trusting in Jesus as the Christ. And so they're overcome by jealousy. I don't know how jealousy or envy works for you in your life. I've never found it to be a particularly, particularly um, a productive trait. In fact, the Bible refers to it openly as sin. It's always going to lead us to make dumb decisions and to do dumb things, and it does the same thing uh, for them uh, as, as well. And uh, so here they are claiming to worship uh, God, claiming to represent God in Thessalonica. They're consumed by jealousy now, and it's going to turn into something very, very ugly. And jealousy is never uh, more uh, ugly. It never tarnishes a person uh, more than when it tarnishes someone who claims to represent God and then operates out of envy or out of jealousy uh, rather than the Holy Spirit. So they feel they've got to do something now to discredit uh, Paul and Silas and to kind of bring a halt to their growing influence. So they seek to arrest them and then bring them before the rulers of the city. But they've got to have a charge to bring uh, these men before the magistrates of the city with, and they can't very well be honest about it. They can't go to the Roman governors and say to them, listen, we want these guys to be arrested because they came into our synagogue and they preached Jesus as the Messiah, and so many people have believed in Jesus now, it's created a tear within uh, the synagogue. If they did that before a Roman official, a Roman official would say, what business is that of, of ours? This is a secular government. You go handle it uh, on your own. And so uh, they... Uh, they, they decide they've got to resort to really an age-old tactic in, in kind of resisting Paul and uh, Silas, and that is when a person cannot meet another person on the basis of facts or on the basis of reason, what you always resort to or historically people have, is you then resort to violence, which is exactly what they do. So they gather a crowd of uh, evil men who are just kind of idly hanging out in the marketplace of the city. And the idea in the original language is that they're, they're lazy, they're loafers, and uh, on, in not wanting to work and kind of no, all this time on their hands that, that they're easily influenced for any kind of excitement and following it, even if that excitement is no good. And so these uh, Jews then come to them, and uh, they apparently convince them readily of the fact that Paul and Silas, in speaking of Jesus as the Messiah and speaking him evidently as a king, that, he, that he, they were in the city of Thessalonica calling people now uh, to a rebellion against the authority of Caesar, the emperor or the king of uh, the Roman uh, empire. And so it didn't take much for that uh, mob to develop and for it to become completely inflamed, and they attacked the house of Jason. We read it on the, you know, pages, words on the page of, of our Bible, but put yourself right in that place. They stormed the house and uh, with the intent of finding Paul and Silas and arresting them and bringing them before the magistrates. Paul and Silas are uh, not in the house, and so they do the next best thing that they can do. They arrest a man by the name of Jason and other Christians, brand new Christians, obviously, who are within the city, and, uh, and arrest them, drag them through the city. Again, the violence of the scene. I don't know the last time you've been dragged somewhere, but that's what's going on here, a dangerous scene uh, for what they're in the middle of. 
and they take them and they bring them, as we're told in verses 6 and 7, before the rulers. And you notice the accusation that they laid out before the rulers, first in the end of verse 6, they accuse them of, these are These who have turned the world upside down have now come here too. That's a wonderful confession on the part of its enemies, a wonderful confession to the power of the gospel, and a wonderful admission, uh, though backhanded, a wonderful compliment and admission to the effectiveness of the Apostle Paul's ministry. They didn't quite have it right, though. The fact of the matter is that the world is already upside down due to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So when you turn something uh, upside down that is already upside down, you're actually turning it right side up. And that's exactly what the gospel does, not only in a city or in a nation, but what it does in, in individual life. Christianity is revolutionary. It is absolutely revolutionary, and I think there's a tremendous pressure that is upon us today, certainly upon pastors, to make it something less than the revolutionary thing, not only that it is, but that it needs to be in people's lives. We are in the middle of a revolution. We're in the middle of a war, a great spiritual warfare against the world and the flesh and the devil, and in order for there to be an answer against a triunity of enemies like that, you better be in the middle of something that is able to lead a successful revolution against them, and Christianity does that. It is revolutionary because it needs to be and because we need it to be. And it's not just a bunch of nice little things that the Bible has provided to provide us with some sermon fodder to make us all feel better about ourselves as we depart week in and week out. That's not the strength of Christianity. The reason I say that is that if you sit here today and you look at your life and it is a mess, uh, top to bottom and in all directions, your life is a mess, you know it, but you know it within the privacy of your own heart. Every relationship you've ever had in life, you have destroyed. And every every direction you've gone in life has ended up in ashes. And for years and years, you were able to convince yourself that the problem in your life is you just haven't met the right person yet, and every injustice that's come your way has always been because they didn't understand you or everybody else was wrong. And then finally you wake up one day And then we come to realize that the problem isn't with everyone else. The problem is with me. And the problem is deep within me. And I don't need a little fine-tuning from a sermon or from a religion. I need a revolution to occur in my life. I need a great war to be fought, and I need a great victory to be won in my life. And if you sit here today and you need a revolutionary change in your life, then Christ is the one to do it. And Christianity is the religion that will accomplish it in your life by believing and receiving Jesus Christ in your life this morning. So they come and they accuse Jason and the others of turning the whole world upside down. The second charge that they bring to the magistrates is that Jason was harboring men uh, in his home that were calling for the worship of another king than Caesar. Very important, dangerous charge in those days to lead a rebellion against Rome. They took that kind of stuff very, very seriously. And so they were, you know, portraying them there as uh, leading, you know, somehow leading in this teaching that they're involved in and what they brought into Thessalonica now here, that Jason is now complicit with uh, Paul and Silas in trying to lead a revolution against the power and the authority of the Roman Empire and specifically uh, against Caesar himself. So this dangerous frenzy occurs against Jason and others, and it's all being stirred up by these Jews who knew they were not being honest at all about any of this, 
All of these are lies born out of jealousy. It does appear that the rulers who are listening to all of this are uh, of a little calmer sort. Uh, the passage indicates they're not believing the accusations, at least, you know, not lock, stock, and, uh, and barrel. If they, they are suspicious of the story, if they had believed that these guys were truly leading uh, an insurrection against Rome, they would have immediately incarcerated them and put them on trial. But they've got a little bit of a problem on their hands. They know that these men are probably innocent of the accusations that are being made against them, but there's a great mob that's in front of them. If they simply release, release Jason and the other brethren, he, they're probably going to be uh, inciting an even greater riot. And so they've got to do something. And so they release Jason and his friends on bail and uh, with the idea that they would come perhaps in another date and answer these charges in, in a Roman uh, court uh, of, of law, and, uh, but perhaps they were also just simply being released on condition that they will leave that courthouse, go find Paul and Silas, and encourage them to leave Thessalonica as soon as possible, or you're not getting your money back on your bail, and uh, so that this city can come back uh, to normal. And this would, of course, explain Paul and Silas's immediate departure from, uh, from Thessalonica to Berea at the time. It is, this is the fifth, fully the fifth time that the Apostle Paul, in the course of his missionary journeys, is forced to leave a city under these kind of circumstances. He's a riot has been is broken out against him, and though he's, travel, though he's traveling with, he would go into a city, and you've got to give him credit, man. He'd go into a city, and he would preach Jesus to that city until he was forced to leave. And I mean, and sometimes he didn't even get out of the city before they dragged him out and stoned him to death or incarcerated him, but he would take and preach the Lord Jesus to that city until the final last moment, and then he would abandon the city, leave that newly founded church in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and make his way again to the, the next city. Again, I make mention of the English bishop. Uh, in observing the differences between his life and ministry and that of the Apostle Paul's when he declared that wherever Paul went, he started a revolution, and wherever I go, they serve me tea. And there's a lot to be said uh, for that about Paul's ministry. And I don't uh, uh, have, I, I, I can't speak authoritatively to the bishop's uh, ministry. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time together examining what is the proposition of these nine verses. What is the point of these nine verses? That gives us the context. It helps us understand the setting for it. And, and from and the proposition, the point of this particular section of Acts chapter 17 is that from the vantage point of heaven, from the vantage point of the Scriptures and the Apostle Paul, that Christianity is not only a reasonable faith, but that to reject Jesus as the Christ and as my Savior is completely unreasonable. I want you to notice the language of the passage. In verse 2, we're told that on those three Sabbaths, that the Apostle Paul, notice in verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And at least, if you don't do it physically, at least in your mind, circle that word reasoned in your mind, and then right in the margin, Christianity is a reasonable faith. Paul felt so, and so he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In verse 3, we're further told uh, what facts Paul was reasoning with them about in order to establish. And he was endeavoring to establish two great facts before this religious audience. Number one, we're told that he was explaining and demonstrating that Jesus had, uh, that the Christ or the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. 
Now, you might wonder, why in the world would the Apostle Paul have to establish that from the Scriptures that the Messiah was going to have to uh, suffer, die, and rise again uh, before the rulers? Uh, it, it, why would he need to establish that in a Jewish context, in a Jewish religious context? Why wouldn't everybody know that? Because the message of a suffering Messiah was something that filled the entire Old Testament. But at the time in which Paul comes here to the city of Thessalonica, and it was characteristic of the Jews in the Roman Empire as a whole, they were completely dominated by their political uh, reality, uh, by their geopolitical reality known as the Roman Empire. And so the message of a suffering Messiah was something that was inconceivable at the time to the vast majority of, of Jews at the time because the rabbis, in order to keep the Jews encouraged, in order to keep hope alive within them under the bondage of the Roman Empire, was constantly teaching them the Old Testament from one angle, the angle that the Messiah is coming as a conquering king. And so he's going to come, he's going to return, he is going to throw off this Roman yoke that is upon us, and that became the great theme of their messages to the neglect of a world of scriptures in the Old Testament that spoke of the fact that, yes, Messiah would come as a conquering king, but he would also come as a suffering uh, savior. So they emphasized the conquering king message, and they neglected the Old Testament passages that declared that he would also be a suffering savior. And this this is the problem with only reading those passages of the Bible that appeal to us and then ignoring those that do not. What the Jewish religious leaders did was not something that was uncommon. We can all fall prey to it, and I think we can fall prey to it the longer we walk with the Lord, where now I only read the portions of the Bible that uh, are exciting to me or the only the ones that are uh, solely an encouragement to me. I don't like all of those exhortive texts anymore. I want a little, you know, spiritual pep talk from the Scriptures. And so I love the Psalms, and I love the book of Philippians, and so forth, but I really don't go into those Old Testament prophets uh, anymore. The book of Revelation scares me to death. I stay away from that, and so forth. And then what we can do as Christians is grow and become completely unbalanced in our understanding of the Scriptures on any subject. It is a great natural tendency to gravitate toward what we consider to be positive and then to move away from what we consider to be negative. But as the old saying goes, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Otherwise, we will fall into the same trap that these Jewish religious leaders did. What they did not realize was that Messiah would come in two comings. In his first coming, he would come as a suffering Savior. And in his second coming, he would come as a conquering king. So this is what they were trying to explain and to demonstrate, that Messiah had to suffer and he had uh, to rise again from the dead. And then the second point they were making, we're told, is the point that Jesus was and is that Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. Now, clearly... Paul, as he's preaching to them during these three Sabbath days, he did not want their faith in Jesus to be based upon emotion, or we wouldn't have the word reasoned in the verse. He did not want them to trust in Jesus as their Savior based upon emotional experience or a burning in their bosom or on the basis of blind faith or wishful thinking, but he wanted their faith to be firmly based upon reason. Now, chief among the reasons that he gave them for faith in Jesus as Messiah was the Scriptures themselves, the witness of the Old Testament to the fact. 
And in a Jewish audience, you couldn't use a more authoritative voice for establishing something than the Jewish Scriptures. And so he speaks to them of the witness of the Old Testament to these facts he's trying to establish, so he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. His methodology was a simple one, and it's described for us in verse 3, where it is described as explaining and demonstrating, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again and saying, this Christ whom I preach to you, uh, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. The Greek word that is used for our English word demonstrating in that passage, it literally means to place beside, to place alongside. So what Paul does for three consecutive Sabbaths is this. He simply took the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah, and then he laid them alongside the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And then he asked the audience in comparison, the comparing the two together to see for themselves whether they were not a perfect match or, or not. Well, where might Paul have gone in the Old Testament to make this point, to do this demonstrating, this reasoning, this explaining? Uh, literally, he might have gone hundreds of places in the Old Testament. Because from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, as far back in the Bible as not only the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, but Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3 within that book, God promised after the fall of Adam and Eve to send mankind a Messiah, an anointed one, a Savior who would come into the world and into human history and undo all of the far-reaching damage of Adam and Eve's fall in that garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, he began his prophetic description of this Messiah. Now, the examples of, of his Old Testament description of this coming Messiah, God had declared that this Savior would be born into the world. Now, that may seem like, well, how else would they come into the world? Well, this particular one, they might have sent him on a starship, or he might have just come down from heaven, you know, and some apparition coming down in this, you know, whole beam of light or something like that to get the attention of the world. But instead, God said, no, when the Messiah comes, he will be born into the world, and further, that he would be born of a virgin. And at that very scene of the fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, God declared to the serpent, he declared to the devil, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then speaking of the Messiah, he shall bruise your head. And the idea is he will crush your head, he will crush your authority, and you will bruise his heel. Well, when you think about uh, human reproduction, the woman never brings the seed to that process. The woman brings the egg. The man brings the seed. So when he talks about someone being born of the seed of a woman, he's talking about a virgin birth here. He's talking about a miracle in which a woman here gives birth uh, to a child where a man has not been involved in the conception of that child. Through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and all of this is Isaiah's prophecy 740 years before Jesus was even born, God declared concerning the Messiah, for unto us a child is born, one of the most famous Christmas uh, passages in all the Bible. In Isaiah chapter uh, 7, God declared prophetically, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this Messiah will be born. He will be born of a virgin. The 
Old Testament scriptures also declared through the prophet Micah that God would be, God declared that when the Messiah came, he would be born in the city of Houston. Okay, just testing some of you. If, I, if I'd have gotten an amen out of that, I'd have known somebody just woke up and, uh, amen, preach it, brother. No, Micah prophesied that the Messiah, when he was born, he would be born in the city of Bethlehem, just as Jesus was. But you, Bethlehem, Micah wrote, by the Spirit of God, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. That prophecy given 750 years before Jesus was born. Further, God had declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be divine. That is, that he would be God in human flesh. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. And then here it is, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, Isaiah prophesied the same thing. Isaiah 7.14, now I'll read it to you in its entirety. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This child will come into the world, and he is not just any child. He will be Emmanuel, God with us, and so Jesus was, and so he is. Further, God declared that when Messiah came into the world, he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and additionally, that he would also be born into the world through one of the, a single one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. Genesis, Moses writing, Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is something that is given to a ruler, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. 1,700 years before Jesus was born, and so Jesus was come into the world, a descendant of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and also of the tribe of Judah. God declared that when the Messiah came, he would be a physical descendant of King David. He would be of the bloodline of the greatest king that Israel ever had. Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, that's David's bloodline, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And Jesus was born into the world through the bloodline of David. God also declared that Messiah would be rejected and that he would die at the hands of the very people that he came into the world in order to save. Isaiah chapter 53, and you can bet during those three Sabbaths that Paul was teaching them in Thessalonica that he spent a lot of time in Isaiah chapter 53. But God declared the very point that Paul is making in that synagogue, that the Messiah would be rejected. He would die at the very hands of the ones he came to save. Isaiah 53, 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Again further in Isaiah chapter 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He is going to suffer, and he is going to die. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so Jesus was rejected. 
And he did die at the hands of the very ones he had come to save. The Bible declares prophetically that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. And so Jesus was by Judas, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the exact price that the Jewish religious leaders paid Judas in order to betray Jesus. The Scriptures declared that the Messiah would be falsely accused and uh, silent before his accusers. Uh, Isaiah, again, as we've just read, and so Jesus was. The Scriptures declared that the Messiah would be beaten and he would be spat upon. This was unthinkable in the Jewish mind, that anyone would treat the Messiah in this way, and yet that is exactly what happened to Jesus. The Scriptures declared that his death would involve the piercing of his hands and of his feet. This takes us into Psalm 22. If, they, if Paul in the synagogue in, in the city of Thessalonica spent the bulk of his time in Isaiah 53, the other place that he would have spent the bulk of his time would have been in Psalm uh, 22, David's great prophetic psalm concerning uh, the death and, and the scene of the crucifixion of the Messiah. And Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Again, unthinkable in the Jewish mind that they would ever reject their Messiah, much less that they would be involved in his crucifixion. And how could David even be right related to this? Because Jews don't kill by crucifixion. They killed by stoning. That was the means of capital punishment in the Old Testament. All of it was unthinkable to them. And yet God stands by his word. No, he will die a death that involves the piercing of his hands and his feet. Because God knew that the Messiah would be born into the world at a time in which the world-ruling empire would be Rome related to Israel and that their means of public execution would be crucifixion. The Scriptures declared that the soldiers would gamble for his clothing while he was being crucified. Again, Psalm 22, and so it happened at the base of Jesus' cross, that he would be crucified with thieves, with transgressors, and so Jesus was, that his side would end up being pierced, and so Jesus was, not to accomplish his death, but in order to confirm his death after it had happened. But the Old Testament Scriptures also declared that Messiah would not stay in that dead condition long enough for his body uh, to corrupt, but that he would rise again from the dead. And Psalm 16, and David writes, For you, speaking to God the Father, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, And then he speaks now concerning the Messiah. Nor will you, speaking to the Father, allow your Holy One, the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, see corruption. He would die, but he would not remain dead long enough for his body to see corruption. He would rise from the dead, and so Jesus did. And on and on and on we could go. And so the Apostle Paul, I love it, if you ever see any kind of an audio recording of those three Sabbath messages on eBay or something, buy them for me and I'll pay you good money for, uh, for them. We'll have to establish the legitimacy of them. But you think about Paul in there for three weeks. He's driving home the same point. We're not talking about an hour service. We're talking about all day long virtually for three Sabbaths here. And he is uh, taking and going from one prophetic scripture to another, laying it aside, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And why could he do that and, and fill Uh, the time of three Sabbath days in doing so because it is estimated that Jesus fulfilled over 300 such Old Testament prophecies in his first coming and the rest he will fulfill at his second coming. And God gives this amazing prophetic description of the Savior that he would send into the world. Why? to be able to say to Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, look what I can do and none of you can do? Why would he do this? To show off? Of course not. He did it so that when this Messiah was introduced into human history, 
that every single one of us in this room and in the world would recognize him for who he was. And in fact, God made this prophetic description so detailed and so precise as to make it impossible to miss him when he came. And we know that only one person in human history matches that prophetic portrait, and it is Jesus Christ himself. Here's how it works in my mind. Imagine behind me that there would be a great painter's canvas on a a great easel situated behind me. And if you were to give a master painter over 300 strokes of the brush upon that canvas, some of them broad, some of them fine, it wouldn't take very long until a recognizable, even an unmistakable face emerged. It stroke 50. It stroke 70. It stroke 120. This is starting to take form. All of you have been to some kind of a carnival or some kind of a, a fair of some kind where somebody sits down and you put your child there and you pay this person X amount of dollars to now do this picture of your child And you see how in relatively few strokes they have captured the entire uh, essence of your your child, far less than 300 strokes. But here these strokes are being uh, laid, and again, it wouldn't be long until a recognizable, even an unmistakable face would emerge. You would have the broad strokes of the bloodline of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, being a descendant of David, and then the incredibly fine strokes being added to the canvas as well, the betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, crucified between two thieves, resurrected from the dead, born of a virgin until only one life in human history matches the description. And why would God provide this prophetic portrait in order to provide us with a reasonable faith. Not a blind faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but a faith based upon the surest thing that exists in this world, and that is upon the unchanging eternal Word of God. It's important for you to understand, especially if you're new to the Bible, that Jesus did not just show up out of nowhere and then expect people to recognize him as the Messiah simply because he said he was. He was constantly calling upon people to recognize him as the Messiah based upon the prophetic scriptures. You might remember to the religious leaders of his day, after their rejection of him, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes? And he quotes to them the Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118 and lets them know essentially that their rejection of him as the Messiah means nothing, and in fact their rejection of him is only a confirmation of an Old Testament prophecy that declared that the religious leaders by and large would. And then uh, to the religious leaders of his day who rejected him on the basis of his claim to be divine, uh, believing that the Messiah would come but he would only be a great man, uh, but merely a man, Jesus spoke to them. And he said, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? And the idea is merely David's son. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David therefore calls the Messiah Lord. How then can he be his son or merely his son? And Jesus again quotes from an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 110. 
When Judas was betraying Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls the sword out, and he starts hacking off ears in, in, in that environment. He's going to protect Jesus from the injustice of the scene. And Jesus then quiets Peter and the rest of the disciples by reminding them of the prophetic scriptures. Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not know that I cannot, do you, do, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And then here it is. How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and with clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. And then Jesus returns to the Old Testament Scriptures in speaking now to them. And he says, But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. The writer of the book of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit, declared concerning the, the Old Testament the volume of the book speaks of him. The entire Old Testament, not just the New Testament, is all about the sending of this Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the redemption of mankind. After his resurrection, Jesus speaking to the two men on the road to Emmaus. They had believed in Jesus, thought he was the Messiah, but now he's been crucified, and they put him in the grave, and he's been in that grave for three days. They're walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. Jesus, unbeknownst to them, they couldn't recognize him for who he was, comes into the scene, begins to ask them about the cause for their sorrow, and, and so uh, forth and their loss of hope and all. And what did Jesus do? He reminded them of the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. On the evening of his resurrection, he comes to the disciples who are huddled in fear in an upper room in Jerusalem. I don't put them down. I would have probably gathered them with them behind those locked doors. And when he enters into the room supernaturally, what does he do? He reminds them of the prophetic scriptures. So their faith is based upon them. And he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And Jesus intentionally over and over and over again founded people's faith on his fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. And the Apostle Paul does the exact same thing here in Acts chapter 17. When he called the people, he called on them to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, he did so in that they would do it on the basis of his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. If you're new to the Bible, it's very important for you to understand the prophetic element associated with Jesus' life, the prophecies given by God so that we would recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah when he came, come into the world, to provide us with redemption, salvation, the forgiveness of sins. If I knew nothing of the Bible 
and someone were to come up to me in this Christmas season and declare to me on the street, listen, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and you need to make him the Lord and Savior of your life. I might be very polite in what I say to them, but in my mind, something like this would occur. I'd think to myself, yeah, right, and precisely why would I do that concerning him over any other person who's ever been born into this world now or in human history? And the answer to my objection is there, though I'm ignorant of it. The answer to the question is because of God's prophetic description of him. And God does not call upon us to put our faith in Jesus blindly. He calls us to a reasoned, reasonable faith based upon the fact that Jesus is a perfect match to the description given to us in the prophetic scriptures concerning the Messiah. And then the question becomes in this room this morning, the same question that dawned upon everyone in that ancient synagogue, and that is, what are you going to do with that? Because everyone's going to do something with that. And from the vantage point of heaven, the only reasonable thing is for a person to put their trust in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and as our Savior this morning, and that the most unreasonable person, the most unreasonable thing, rather, that a person could do with that portrait is to fail to trust in Jesus Christ and recognize him as the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And so in the light of that portrait, that prophetic portrait, I can only speak for myself, I wouldn't bet a nickel against that portrait, that Old Testament prophetic portrait, being a portrait of anyone other than Jesus. I wouldn't bet a nickel against it, let alone my eternity. And I hope that you won't do so either. Think about what God has done to get our attention. Not a call to blind faith, never. He's not interested in it. He's not interested in it. He is interested in our minds first, and then our will, and then the emotion will follow. And look what he has given to us, something that causes us to be able to make this decision not on the basis of blind faith or emotional experience, but because it is the only reasonable thing to do in the light of what he has provided to us. If you have never trusted in Christ, it's a wonderful Christmas message, by the way, but if you have never trusted in Jesus, recognized him as the promised savior of the world, and now needing and desiring to take the next step, which is for you to personally invite him to become your Lord and your savior, there are going to be men and women and pastors up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God and to be in relationship with the one who is the reason for this season. And everything changes for you in a wonderful way. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. If you need prayer for some need in your life this morning, whatever it might be, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you in the words of the Apostle Peter for the more sure word of prophecy. What a foundation you have given us for our faith. 
Thank you that you didn't make that foundation our own thinking, our own emotions, our own education. We change by the day. We change by the hour. There's so much that is beyond our control, even in what we might feel from one moment to the next, believe one moment to the next. We thank you that you have given us a proof and a foundation for our faith that is independent of us, Lord, is firmly founded upon you and upon your word. And for that reason, will never shift or change on us, will never disappoint. And I thank you, Lord, on behalf of so many within this room for whom this is familiar territory. We thank you again, Lord, for the portrait. We thank you for what it meant to us when that light went on for us and what it continues to mean to our faith today. And we pray now for each one of these men and women that you love so much and you care about so much and wouldn't be in church unless they're in the middle of a search, but they have not yet trusted in Jesus. We pray, Lord, for that quickening of your spirit, the witness of your spirit in their heart, that they are home in coming to you, they are home in coming to Jesus, and, Lord, that you would bring them into your family today as they would surrender to you. Bless them, Lord. Save them, Lord, we pray, and then lead them out into this revolutionary life, this greatest life that any human being can ever live. And we pray these things, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.